2,000 years ago, along the rocky shore of a small sea, not really much more than a small lake, really, walked a rather ordinary-looking young man. At this point, there were no large crowds following him. There was no controversy dogging his heels. In fact, no one would have even taken notice of this solitary figure as he strolled. The name of Jesus had not become a fixture in every household, in every town, in every city, in every country and continent. At this time, he was just a man from Nazareth, nothing special. Uh, not many people even knew his name at this point. And those who did know him thought nothing of him. When they hired him to do their carpentry jobs, they didn't realize they were hiring the creator of the universe. So who was this man from Nazareth? Well, after his baptism by, the, by John the Baptist, Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, he read from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. He shocked his audience by saying that he was the one who had been anointed by the, the Lord to proclaim good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives. His audience in Nazareth could hardly believe their ears. Astute observers perhaps had already noticed that Jesus was something special, and, and they thought maybe he would do something important with his life, but to hear them claim that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was almost more than they could believe. And it forced them to ask the question, a very important question, who is this man from Nazareth, and what is he going to do? And that, my friends, is the million-dollar question. In fact, it's more than a million dollars, right? Because no amount of money is more important than where you spend eternity. And it is all staked upon that question. Do you know Christ? Now, the claim he made in the Nazareth synagogue was an extraordinary claim. And we can understand why people would do a double take when they see this young, ordinary-looking man saying that he is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. The four Gospels, which make up the four first books of our New Testament, tell of this man. They reveal his life, his ministry, and all of the amazing claims he made and the signs he did to back them up. Now, we're about to begin, in a couple weeks, a study of the Gospel of Mark. And I'm very excited about it. I think it's a really good and healthy thing for us to do. Because I believe that we ought to, on a regular basis, be studying and reading of the life of Christ. It's just, if we call ourselves by his name, Christians, then we owe it to ourselves and to others that we live and study the life of Christ. And we're going to do that by walking through the Gospel of Mark. Now, I love the Gospel of Mark for a lot of things, but if you ever read it, and, and we're going to study it together, it's a very fast-paced gospel. It's, it's action-packed. And so when the Gospel of Mark gets started, it gets started running, sprinting, really. There's not a lot of background. There's not a lot of introductory material. For instance, Matthew and Luke both give us infancy narratives where we read about Jesus' birth and his origins. We read about his genealogies. Mark passes over all that and just launches straight into the ministry of Jesus. Because of that, I thought it would be helpful for us to, to get a little bit of background, get a little bit of the sense of, of the prophecies which foretold his coming, and I think it will also give us insight into what 
Jewish people in Israel at the birth of Christ were thinking about the Messiah. After all, Jesus did not just enter a vacuum. There were very specific scriptures that foretold the coming of one that they called the Messiah. So while this is not technically part of our series on Mark, I I mean it to help our understanding that we might know what to look for, what people were expecting at the time, and more importantly to see what was Jesus come to do. Now, 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote about a child who would be born, a son who would be given. And he foretells the coming of Christ, the Messiah, in sometimes puzzling ways. We see this, by the way, not only in Isaiah, but all the prophets. The scriptures paint a picture of the coming Christ, the one who would be known as the Messiah. However, the details of his life are fragmented and shared in various places. And by that, I mean this, that in the, in the prophets, there's not one chapter that sort of lays out systematically, here's who the Messiah is and where he, what he will do. Instead, you have to kind of glean from all over the prophets a little prophecy here and a word, an oracle here. And as we put them together, it takes a good deal of work to try and fit the pieces. Uh, whenever I think of the prophecies concerning the Messiah, I think of it oftentimes as a mosaic. There's all these little pieces that make up the image. Now you can see, and I, I know this image is a little bit blurry, but if you can tell, these are all pictures of babies. And it just looks like a collage. It's like all these images sort of thrust together. There's not really any particular rhyme or reason we see about it. We could easily, if we zoomed in even closer, look at one individual picture. But all of the pictures together form an image. And if we zoom out, we see that they've taken all of these images of babies and turned them into a mosaic, a picture that we can see at a distance. Now, when you zoom up up close, you don't always see the the wider image. This is what I think of when I think of the prophecies of the Old Testament. There's all these little snapshots of the Messiah all over in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And if you look at any one of them, they make sense by themselves. But how do they fit into the big picture? Well, when Jesus came, it fit all those otherwise disparate images into one large image. Another illustration I like to use, referring to the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, is a riddle. Sometimes I like to call it the Messiah riddle. Because a riddle is a word puzzle. A puzzle that presents a paradox. Uh, I don't know if you like riddles or not, but... um, With a riddle, you'll have a statement uh, that, on the surface of it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems contradictory. But when you answer the riddle, it brings it all together and you say, oh, I get it now. For instance, let's try a couple riddles. Number one, what is so fragile that saying it breaks its name? Saying its name breaks it. What's so fragile that saying its name breaks it? Like, okay, let me think. Well, the answer is silence. Whenever silence is said, it breaks it. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, I have lakes with no water, mountains with no stone, cities with no buildings. What am I? Well, a map. Of course, right? Mountains, no stone, lakes with no water. You know, once you have the answer, it makes sense. Well, so it is with these messianic prophecies. They seem paradoxical at first. 
After all, the prophets say that he, the one who will come will be a reigning, glorious king whose throne will never end. Okay. But the prophets also say he will be rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He will suffer and die. Well, those two don't seem to go together. In fact, they seem like a paradox. How can he suffer and die, but also reign forever? Those two seem to be exclusive of each other. Ah, but that's when we come to the New Testament and the pieces come together. In fact, this problem was such a problem to the Jewish rabbis who studied it that they actually came up with an idea that there was going to be two messiahs. There would be what they called Messiah ben Joseph, who would suffer and die, and another Messiah would come, Messiah ben David, who would rule and reign. That was their way of answering the riddle. There must be two. Well, we know that in the New Testament, there is a remarkable convergence of all of these prophecies. The whole mosaic comes into focus with Jesus. And Isaiah 61 is one of those pieces of the puzzle. That's why I want us to look at it, because it will give us a good overview of Jesus' mission, what he came to do. So what did Jesus come to do? Well, if I could put it in a simple statement, it's this. Christ came to restore that which sin destroyed. Christ came to restore that which sin destroyed. The curse which has toppled our world and, and sent it spiraling into sin has affected everything in creation. That our entire world is under the curse and Christ came to restore. His mission is one of restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. And everything that we see in the Gospels, his life, his ministry, his death on the cross, addresses the problem of sin and that curse which was over all of creation. Now, Isaiah 61, if you've got your Bible open, is a highly significant passage about the role of the Messiah. Again, we mentioned, this is the very text that Jesus quoted in the Nazareth synagogue. When he wanted to tell the people, here's who I am, here's what I've come to do, he opens the book to Isaiah 61. Now, the latter half of Isaiah, Isaiah is such a uh, wonderful but huge book. The latter half, chapters 40 through 66, really focus on hope and comfort that the Lord who pours out his judgment in the first half of the book is also going to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And he's going to do it through his servant. And in the last half of Isaiah, there's what's called the servant songs. There's several passages which talk about the servant of the Lord who will come and he will restore. Well, who's the servant? Well, it's the Messiah, the, the king, the prince to come. Now, there are typically known four servant songs that people will talk about. I believe that Isaiah 61 is the fifth. Not everybody agrees, but I think there's so many similarities here with the other servant songs, it's almost undeniable. That here, he doesn't say servant in this passage, which is probably why people overlook it. But it's clear he's talking about the same person. So we get a glimpse of what the Messiah will do. Let's look together, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Bible says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me or appointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. We'll stop there. Originally, I planned to get through verses 1 through 6, but I, it's pretty clear to me now we're not going to get through verse 3. So I think we'll see the whole picture of what I want us to grasp here in the first three verses. The servant of the Lord will come and restore that which sin has destroyed. That restoration is both individual and universal. And that's going to be our outline this morning as we look at Christ's mission. Individual restoration and universal restoration. We begin with, number one, individual restoration. Christ came to restore and redeem individuals, you and me, to God. We, as people, are separated from God by the vast chasm of our sin, alienated from our creator. And unless we see his work of individual restoration, we're going to miss one of the main reasons Jesus came. There's something very personable, personal excuse me, about Christ's ministry and death. He came to save people, individuals. Now, centuries after Isaiah... Jesus applied these words to himself. And it's a very rare moment because typically Jesus, we don't have very many examples of Jesus quoting specific Old Testament passages and applying them to himself. And he begins in verse 1 of Isaiah 61 when he reads in Nazareth. The Bible says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Let's stop there for a moment. You will see in, in the verse 1 of of Isaiah 61, all three persons of the Trinity present. Now, it's not fleshed out in detail here, but he talks about the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of God who anoints, who enlightens, who guides. But he also mentions it's the Spirit of the Lord God. And again, the, the way it's stated there in Greek is Adonai, Lord, Yahweh, God. So, the Lord, the one who is ruler, who is also God. Talking about God the Father. And not only this, it says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now, who's speaking here? Well, some people have suggested it's the prophet Isaiah speaking. However, there's a couple of problems with that. Now, that view has been, of course, very popular with Jewish interpreters because they don't want this verse to apply to Jesus. Uh, but... Very popular to ascribe this to Isaiah. However, I don't think it's Isaiah that's speaking here. First of all, the language of the other servant songs is too strong to deny. So the words of this person is clearly the words of the servant of God earlier in Isaiah. Second, the description that follows could not have been fulfilled by the prophet. The prophet could not bind up the brokenhearted. He could not set the captives free. He could not restore all of creation. So even the description doesn't fit. Third, Jesus confirms it, right? Because Jesus specifically says, this is me. These words are fulfilled today, he says. So it's not Isaiah. It's actually the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, who is speaking here in verse 1. Then he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, what does that conjure up in your mind? Well, if you studied the Gospels, when Jesus was baptized, the voice of the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God 
appeared as a dove and descended upon Jesus. So you have kind of an echo of Isaiah 61 at the baptism of Jesus. You have the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have the Son all together in the same scene. The Spirit is upon me, says Isaiah, to speaking of the Messiah. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me. Now, anointing in the Old Testament was the pouring of oil on the head. It was done to, to inaugurate kings and priests. So there's something very kingly about this, what's described here. The spirit coming upon them, being anointed. It's going to be a Messiah king. Not only that, we've been saying throughout here that the Jews talk about the Messiah. Well, the word Messiah, Mashiach, means the anointed one. Same word here, by the way, Mashiach. Anointed. So this one who appears in Isaiah 61 is the servant of the Lord. He is the anointed one. He is the king. The, the language here is undeniably royal, but what is his royal mission? Well, it's restoration, individual restoration. So what does he come to do? Let me break it down like this. He has come first to preach the good news, to preach the good news. Look at uh, verse 1 again. He says, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. So all of the talk of the spirit and anointing is for the task of preaching. And he's preaching good tidings. He will be a herald of good news. But not just a herald. He himself is the good news. You know, a herald who brings good news uh, typically comes in and he, he rides into town with, with the news of some good. You know, the king has, uh, has done some good for you. But the herald himself is not the good news. He's just a deliverer of it. With Christ, his presence is the good news. So he preaches good news, but he himself is the good news. I was trying to think of a, of a way to sort of illustrate this. And I thought of 1944. In the winter of 1944, uh, the Germans launched an offensive in World War II called the Battle of the Bulge, we typically refer to it. Well, the 101st Airborne Division was holding a town called Bastogne, and they, they held it under siege for seven days. It was a, it's a really remarkable story of, of courage and uh, you know, strength in battle. But anyways, the 101st Airborne held this town of Bastogne against a superior enemy force for seven days. And on the seventh day, General Apatton arrived with the Third Army. And they brought good news to those soldiers who were sieged in Bastogne. The good news was not, hey, help's coming, guys. Just hold on a little bit longer. The, the good news was, we're here. We'll take it from here. And that's kind of what we get with Jesus. He's, he doesn't say, there's good news, help is coming. His news is, I'm here. I'm the good news. I'm what you need. I'm the one who heals and restores. So Jesus is a preacher of the good news and the good news itself. As we embark on a study of Jesus' life and ministry, there are many stories of Jesus as the miracle worker. In fact, some people refer to him as the, the miracle worker, going from place to place, healing and doing good. Well, Jesus did heal a lot of people. Jesus did a lot of good. But if you read in the Gospels, his main task was preaching. 
He went from town to town, village to village, preaching the gospel. So he fulfilled this calling to preach the good news, the good news that I am here. And the good tidings will have a remarkable effect. Let's see what else he does. He will preach the good news, but he will also give hope to the poor. You notice this also in verse 1. It says he will preach good tidings to the poor. Now, again, when we think about Jesus' ministry, we oftentimes think of him being with the poor, right? Jesus did not hobnob around with powerful elites like Herod and Pilate and uh, Caesar. Most of his ministry was carried out with just ordinary poor people. Nobody special. And he preached to those people. He preached good news to the poor, which probably has to do with more than just material poverty. Okay. When Christ came and preached, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And again, there seems to be an echo of the Isaiah passage in the Beatitudes. He will preach good tidings to the poor. Well, poverty has always been a problem. Uh, Jesus once said, the poor you have with you always. And it remains a troubling problem. People today are always trying to identify the reasons for poverty. And it can be sometimes counterproductive. Because in reali the reality is poverty cannot be traced to one root cause. Because uh, some people might attribute poverty to oppression and mistreatment of the poor by the rich. And that certainly is the case sometimes, but it doesn't account for all poverty. Some poverty, we might say, is the result of people's uh, naivete, their, their lack of proper management, their incompetence. But that doesn't account for all poverty. Uh, some people might say it has to do with cultural attitudes, and that might be true, but that doesn't account for all poverty. As Christians, I think there's one thing we can recognize about poverty, and that is it is a symptom of living in a fallen world, right? The reason the poor are among us and always will be is because we live in a world that just doesn't work. It's broken, and sin is the root cause of that. So what's the good news that Christ brings to the poor? It's not that, hey, here's, here's a government bailout. Here's free money. His news to the poor is, I have come to, to solve the problem of sin. I've come to restore. Which if there's any, if there is a root cause to poverty, it is certainly sin. At some level, he proclaims the news, the good news. But I think it's equally likely that the poor here is used as a figure of speech, not just of people's financial condition, but of being needy. Poor people are needy people, not just of money or things. So the Messiah would bring good news to the poor because it's the poor who need good news. Jesus again says in the Gospels, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. And see, the poor person, the poor in spirit that is, sees that I, I can't do it on my own. I need a savior. I need a redeemer. They are spiritually destitute. They know to look for a savior. And that's why the coming of Christ is good news to the poor. Because they recognize this is what I need. The rich kind of sit back and think, I've got it made. I'm all right. 
Really, it's the poor who see the need. And that's why he comes to preach good tidings to the poor. Not only that, he also comes to bind up the brokenhearted. The text says in verse 1, to heal the brokenhearted. Now, that's a very tender and comforting thought. Uh, Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. Now, what do you think of when you think of a broken heart? We think of sadness. We think of... uh, you know, like a song, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, right? Or some, you know, there, there's so many songs with break, you know, a broken heart in it somewhere. But this verse is not talking about, you know, a girl who's crying because her boyfriend broke up with her type of thing. No, the broken heart here is more than that. You might be interested to know that the verse I mentioned in Psalm 34 continues and says, God is near to those who have a broken heart and such as have a contrite spirit. In other words, this is a heart broken over sin by conviction of the Lord. The brokenhearted are those who are weighed down by their sin, burdened with guilt. It's the tax collector and the prostitute and the embezzler and the demon-possessed. So many of the gospel stories are filled with people who are of a broken heart. They're at the end of their rope. They have nothing else to hold on to, no other hope to grasp at. The text says here he will bind up, he will heal the brokenhearted. This has the idea of wrapping a wound. So Jesus, the great physician, comes along and bandages up those who are hurting, who the effects of sin have torn apart and broken their hearts. He is binding up those who are like a, a burning wick, like a, a dried flax, which is about to snap. He causes and, and carefully cares for the brokenhearted. Joseph Parker, who was a, one of the greatest British preachers of the 19th century, once advised other preachers saying, speak to the suffering and you will never lack an audience. There is a broken heart in every crowd makes me kind of wonder any broken hearts here today I'm sure there are for various reasons and I bet all the reasons go back to sin at one level or another either the effects of sin personal sin or just the reality of living in this world where sin dominates but we are we are torn down by the difficulty well Messiah has come to bind up the brokenhearted A broken heart is a wonderful thing when it leads a person to acknowledge their emptiness and cast themselves on Christ. He is merciful, ready to receive the brokenhearted. It says in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is a restoration that's taking place. The brokenhearted are mended. Not only that, Christ came to set captives free. To set captives free. You notice this, verse 1, proclaim liberty to the captives. The hostages are now set free. The power of sin is often in the Bible depicted as chains, as prison, as imprisonment. But Christ will proclaim liberty to the captives. They will go free. You'll notice on the very next verse, verse 2, he says he will also proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
He's talking there probably about Leviticus. Leviticus 25 tells of the Jubilee year. So just as they had the seven pattern, you work six days, you rest seven. Well, they also had a pattern where every seven years there was a, a year of restoration. And every seven times seven years, that is 49, 50 years, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And prisoners would be released. Um, for instance, if a person was in bondage because of some debt they owed, that debt would be relieved on that Jubilee year, and they could go free from that debt. Listen to what it says. This is uh, Leviticus 25, verse 10. It says, You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty. Sound familiar? Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each year, each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. The 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. That seems to be what Christ is talking about, but not the 50th year. Uh, Philip Ryken describes this as the jubilee to end all jubilees. In other words, this is going to be when, when the Messiah comes, he will set the captives free, and those who are held in bondage, not to debts, but to sin itself, are going to walk free. You know, many people in their testimony describe coming to Christ as being like released from a burden. The great story, Pilgrim's Progress, depicts Pilgrim as carrying this burden on his back, and when he arrives at Calvary, the burden comes off. It's lighted from his shoulders. And so it is that captives are set free. The chains fall off. Not only that, Jesus, in his mission, gives sight to the blind. You'll notice in, in chapter 61... Every translation reads a little bit differently at the end of verse 1. He says, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, there's a matter of translation here. It's, it's kind of difficult to piece together. But the word opening is clearly in there, a word which oftentimes refers to opening eyes rather than prison doors. And that is how Jesus chose to quote it in the New Testament. He said, opening the eyes of the blind. And I think that's probably what the real thrust of it. Now, granted... In a way, the blind are, I guess you could say, prisoners in darkness in terms of, you know, they can't see. But nevertheless, uh, the scales will fall off and the blind will see. Now, Jesus did that physically to a few individuals. But it's more figurative. Those who are blinded by sin, which Jesus, by the way, said was the more serious blindness. In John chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind and after the Pharisees reject that man in his testimony, Jesus says, you're more blind than he was. There's a spiritual blindness. I think that's what is going on here. See, Christ comes to restore that which sin has blinded, which sin has imprisoned, which sin has marred and broken and destroyed. His mission is deeply personal. Jesus came for people. People like the woman at the well, like Nicodemus. He came for the tax collector. He came for Mary Magdalene. He came for people like Zacchaeus. He came for you. He came for me to set us free from sin. There's something deeply personal about Jesus' life and ministry, his work. Let us not think that 
his mission was just sort of a big, broad pattern. It was for people. He came for individuals. Not just, when the Bible says God loved the world, it's not just an abstract sense that he just sort of, oh, he sort of has a warm feeling about the whole world. It is he loved people as individuals. And his mission was to come to seek and to save the lost. Not only that, though, I want to point out with what time we have left. Yes, Christ has come, and we see his mission is for individual restoration, but it's also for universal restoration. It's also for universal restoration. Now, of course, the Lord's plan is to restore individuals, but the plan is also bigger than just individuals. Now, when we think about the mission of Jesus, like, if you were to ask, why did Jesus come? We probably would answer, you know, to save people, to offer salvation, to die on the cross, to to be the, the sin bearer for us. And that's all true. But there's also a universal aspect. The Bible says in Colossians 1 that Christ will reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. All of the universe, he's going to restore. Now, he didn't do that in his first coming, did he? In fact, uh, look at verse 2. So, so he's, Jesus says in the synagogue, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to preach good tidings, to set free the captives, to open blind eyes. And then he says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which we, we talked about, the Jubilee. And then the Bible says he closed the book. And said, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. It's almost like Jesus puts a period after the acceptable year of the Lord. The rest of this awaits future fulfillment. Because look at the next phrase. The day of the vengeance of our God. The day of God's vengeance has not yet arrived. The wrath of God will be poured out against sin. It is coming. However... What Isaiah probably didn't realize was that there would be two comings of the Messiah. See, that's part of the riddle. You know, if, if you think of Jesus coming and is one coming, then it may be hard to put the pieces together. But when you realize there's two, it makes sense. So the day of vengeance is coming. It's, it is a future day. It is a time of God's wrath, but not yet. You see... Christ's plan to redeem individuals is already at work in the world. I'm an evidence of that. But his universal restoration, when he brings all of creation to himself and he restores all of creation, that's a future event. What we have here is an example of what people call prophetic foreshortening. And that is, in the Old Testament prophets, sometimes events that are years, in this case 2,000 or more years apart, are depicted as one. For instance, there's nothing here that indicates that there's going to be a vast period of time between the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. So prophetic foreshortening is oftentimes depicted with this illustration. You're driving across the great prairie land of America, and as you come to see the Rocky Mountains ahead of you, you're, you know, you're driving across the plains, and there's this wall of mountains up ahead in the distance. Now, there's all of these peaks and mountaintops that poke out. And to you, from a distance, they look like they're right next to each other. 
when really they may be miles apart. For instance, uh, as you look at a picture of mountains, and maybe I should have put one up here, um, you know, you see all these little peaks popping out. You may have one here in the front, and then there's one that looks like it's just peeking over its, its uh, shoulder almost. You're like, wow, those, those two mountains, it almost looks like it's right next to it. When really, if you put it in perspective, those mountains are far, far away from each other. So it is. Isaiah sees from a distance the Messiah is coming, and he sees in sort of those two elements as being next to each other, when really, we understand in history, they're much further apart. This led a lot of Jewish people to be confused by Jesus' first coming. Because they were thinking, okay, Lord, when are you going to pull out the sword and start slaying your enemies? And when are you going to bring uh, judgment on our, on our oppressors? When are you going to bring in this glorious reign? But they didn't realize that there was going to be this leaving and then coming back. And that's why it was somewhat confusing to them. And you can, I mean, we can kind of appreciate and understand why it could have been confusing, right? Just as an example, let me, let me suggest this. Imagine a hundred years ago, I had made a prophecy about a man named Ronald Reagan. And my prophecy was, this man will become a great Hollywood actor and will help defeat the Soviet Union. You would probably scratch your chin and say, how's a Hollywood actor going to help defeat a world empire? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, right? But what I've done is I've kind of just put his whole life into a nutshell, haven't I? Because there was a lot of time between his being Hollywood and becoming president and then seeing the Soviet Union collapse. But you see, when you put them all together, it sounds like that, that's confusing to me. How is that actor going to upset world politics? You see, there's, there's more to the story. And so it is with, you can see how they might have been confused if you said, well, Jesus is going to come, he's going to die, and then reign forever. And you're like, how does that make sense? Well, there's the resurrection in there. And there's a return to heaven. All of that is part of the picture. Let's look at the scene of, of Jesus' universal restoration very quickly, though. He says there's going to be first a day of vengeance of our God, verse 2. That comes first. A great pouring out of God's wrath against sin. So it's not like he's just going to erase sin as if it never happened. There's going to be a judgment of it. Sin will be punished. But then after, what happens? And this is, by the way, what all the prophets predict. There's going to be a great and terrible day of the Lord in which sin is judged. And then after that, there's going to be a golden age. Glorious. What does he say here? They have vengeance followed by comfort to all who mourn. So this day of vengeance is going to be followed by comfort. Again, that's a prominent theme in, in Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah, comfort. Then he describes what we would call as the kingdom period. Now, this kingdom period is going to be marked by universal restoration. Look at these phrases he uses in verse 3. He's going to console those who mourn in Zion, that is in Jerusalem, the, the centerpiece of God's kingdom. And he's going to give them, first of all, beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. Now, as you know from probably from studying the Bible before, ashes is a symbol of mourning, of sorrow. People would take ashes and they would literally rub them into their hair or their beard as a way to show their distraught, just broken-hearted mourning. And ashes is a good picture of mourning and loss, isn't it? I mean, a city gets burned to the ground, what's left? Ashes. All that's left of, of men's achievements, ashes. 
Well, in this universal restoration, ashes will be traded for beauty. In this case, the word beauty here refers to a laurel wreath like flowers or uh, leaves worn on the head. It's like a crown or a headpiece. So instead of having ashes rubbed into your hair, he's going to crown you. So there's beauty for ashes, followed then by oil or joy for mourning. And again, he's using this picture. So oil for anointing, for it was a sweet-smelling uh, thing. What's being described here in these verses is sort of uh, God is dressing the city of Jerusalem up like a bride taking away the, the signs of her past of, of hurt and destruction and replacing them now with it gloriously arrayed in all this fine raiment. It says in the next phrase, not only is there going to be joy replacing mourning, but then he says, praise for heaviness. Praise for heaviness or despair. So he talks about a garment of praise again. It's sort of this dress, you know, crown. There's going to be oil, so perfumed and then dressed. It's a beautiful picture. It's, it's restoration. That which was once ugly and torn down is now fixed and repaired. And he's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the kingdom. You notice, and I wish I had time to read all these, but he goes on and says that basically what things are going to be like. The former desolations are going to be rebuilt. The cities are going to be repaired. Their enemies are now going to serve them. It's going to be this glorious golden age. Finally, the last phrase I want to point out, though, is at the end of verse 3. He says, they shall be called trees of righteousness planted of the Lord. It's a great little picture there. Trees of righteousness. Oaks, as some versions say. They will flourish, and their leaves will be of righteousness. They will be redeemed and restored. Talking about Israel as a whole, listen to what Isaiah said at the, back, at the very beginning of his book. When he describes Israel, he says, You shall be as an oak whose leaf fades, and as a garden who has no water. The strong shall be tender, and the work as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one will quench them. In other words, Israel in their sin, he says, is a dried up old oak who's good for nothing but firewood. Now he says, You're going to be planted by the Lord, blooming in righteousness. Total transformation, total change. And this is going to go to the ends of the earth. The, the, the wonder and beauty of God's restoration of Israel and the kingdom will overflow to the nations. They will experience God's restoration. All of creation, which is currently groaning, will finally be repaired by this coming kingdom of Christ. Now as we kind of move to wrap this up, and I know there's a whole lot more we can talk about in Isaiah, but... I want to clarify and maybe correct something you've probably heard before. And I think this would be helpful before we get into the Gospel of Mark. That is, occasionally I've heard people say that, well, the Jews in Jesus' day misunderstood Jesus because they were expecting a literal kingdom fulfillment. And, and the argument is, Jesus offers a different kind of kingdom than what they expected. He offers a spiritual kingdom instead of an earthly, literal kingdom. So basically, Jesus replaces the Old Testament promises with a new, spiritualized version of a kingdom. And that's what they got wrong. They were looking for the wrong thing. They were looking for what Isaiah talked about instead of what Jesus talked about. I think that misses the mark. 
I don't think that's what was going on. Because Jesus doesn't overturn the promises to Israel from the Old Testament. He does not redefine or uh, offer a different kind of kingdom. I think that the misunderstanding is this. The Jews in Jesus' day saw their need for universal restoration, but not individual. In other words, when Jesus came preaching, they said, bring in the kingdom. We need, you know, we want our country restored and our land restored, and we want to have victory over our enemies like the kingdom talks about. But all that individual restoration, no, we're good. We're children of Abraham. We're righteous on our own two feet. We don't need any help from you, Jesus. Thanks, but no thanks. You see, they wanted the kingdom, but they didn't want to repent. That was their problem. It wasn't that, they, that Jesus had changed the kingdom on them. It's that they wanted the kingdom without forgiveness, without repentance. They didn't understand the spiritual requirement for the kingdom. And I think that will help us as we study Mark because there's a lot to be said about the kingdom in the Gospels. So Christ came, according to Isaiah, to offer individual restoration and universal restoration. There's a few questions that kind of naturally flow out from this. Number one, have you been restored by the Christ who saves? Have you been set free? Have your blind eyes been opened? Because that's what happens when Christ restores. Here's what else I would say. Because I hope that's the case. I hope you have been restored by faith. If not, it's as simple as trusting in Christ, which I know is a profound thing. It's not... It's not really simple, but it's simple as far as what we do. We trust him and and we commit ourselves to him in terms of we repent of our sins, we place our faith in Christ. Now, how to do that is not really that complicated, but I'd be glad to talk to anybody who wants further information. However, I think also these verses point us to this truth, and that is if Christ is the one who restores individuals and all of creation, Our job then is not to save anybody, but to point to the one who does. That we direct attention to Christ. We preach him. We preach Christ, the Savior, not ourselves. And so I believe that in ministry, we are successful to the degree that we are signposts that point to Jesus. So I want to return to where I began, and that is this lonely figure who walks along the rugged shores of the Sea of Galilee unknown by the world at this point. But according to Isaiah, 700 years earlier, he was the one who would restore all things to God. And I trust and pray as we study the gospel of Mark together, we would learn to love and follow the one who came to bind up the brokenhearted, to set captives free and open blind eyes. Let's pray. Most gracious God, help us to be signposts that point to your son, the one who has come to restore people, and we thank you. When we think about Messiah's work, we usually think about the individual. Christ came to save people. That is true. But there's also a glorious future restoration of all things, and we groan for that just like creation does. Creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God, and so do we. We groan and wait eagerly, anxiously, for the day when we will be transformed when we will be restored unto God in in the very real and physical sense in his presence. Lord, as we wait for that, may we point others to the one who restores. 
in, this, in his name we pray.